I'm your guest host this hour, Nana Jumpy, filling in for the fierce and fantastic host of Sojourner Truth, Margaret Prescott. If you don't know me, I'm the executive director of the Black Alliance for Just Immigration, as well as the president of the National Conference of Black Lawyers. And I'm here to fill very big shoes, the shoes of our sister, Margaret Prescott. But I'm sure that you will enjoy this show, and I'm happy that you're here joining us. Today on Sojourner Truth, we bring you our coverage of How Cops Get Off, the new national groundbreaking campaign led by the Advancement Project National Office, made more critical in light of the recent cases of police killings in the nation. After the George Floyd, Breonna Taylor summer uprisings, why is it still so hard to hold cops accountable? We will also be discussing new complaints of atrocities at Stewart ICE Detention Center, where more women and femmes keep coming forward, alleging sexual abuse from medical personnel. What is being done to protect migrant women from these abuses, particularly in a state where reproductive justice and body autonomy are clearly under attack? We live in a global world. We are all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted, women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the relationship between art and politics. Now, for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Christina Onestead. Former President Donald Trump chose not to act as he watched his supporters attack the nation's capital for more than three hours. And even then, he still couldn't concede he lost the 2020 election. Despite desperate pleas from his aides, a Republican congressional leader, and his own family, according to the testimony from former White House officials at a January 6th House committee hearing last night. Benji Heyer has more. 187 minutes, during which the president betrayed his oath by refusing to call off the march. It was him pouring gasoline on the fire and making it much worse. That allegation from Sarah Matthews, Donald Trump's former deputy press secretary, one of two ex-staffers who testified. She called January 6th one of the darkest days in the nation's history. Then, perhaps the most chilling revelation by a Secret Service witness who described hearing Vice President Mike Pence's security detail screaming over the radio and saying goodbye to their families in fear for their lives. More hearings are scheduled for September. Benji Heyer, Washington. During the hearing, witnesses described how Trump betrayed his oath of office by refusing to publicly call for a peaceful transition of power. And when he finally called the protesters to withdraw from the Capitol, it wasn't until Fox News reported the National Guard was getting ready to respond, not at Trump's behest. Then he told his supporters, I love you, you're special. In that video message, Trump's former press aide Sarah Matthews says that's when she resigned. I felt a small sense of relief because he finally told these people to go home. But that was immediately followed up by him saying, we love you, you're very special. And that was disturbing to me because 
He didn't distinguish between those that peacefully attended his speech earlier that day and those that we watched cause violence at the Capitol. Instead, he told the people who we had just watched storm our nation's capital with the intent on overthrowing our democracy, violently attack police officers, and chant heinous things like hang Mike Pence. We love you, you're very special. And as a spokesperson for him, I knew that I would be asked to defend that. And Trump still couldn't concede the day after the siege, according to this outtake of his address to the nation. But this election is now over. Congress has certified the results. I don't want to say the election's over. I just want to say Congress has certified the results without saying the election's over, okay? Five people died that day as Trump supporters battled the police in gory hand-to-hand combat to storm the Capitol. Since then, more than 840 people have been charged with federal crimes related to the attack. More than 330 of them have pled guilty. 200 have been sentenced, 100 to jail time. Hearings will resume in September. A bipartisan effort to reform electoral votes is underway in the Senate. Mary Sherman has more. The confusing and antiquated language that we have on the books today from the 1887 Electoral Count Act is a real and present danger to our democracy. We can fix that. Led by West Virginia Democrat Joe Manchin and Maine Republican Susan Collins, a bipartisan group of senators introduced legislation to reform the Electoral Count Act. The measure clarifies the vice president has a strictly ceremonial role during the certification of presidential election results. The vagueness of the original law was exposed when congressional supporters of former President Donald Trump attempted to overturn results in five states. I'm Mary Sherman for Pacifica Network and Public News Service. President Joe Biden has tested positive for COVID-19. The White House said he's experiencing very mild symptoms. Biden has begun taking Paxlovid, an antiviral drug designed to reduce the severity of COVID-19. Biden's infection comes as COVID-19 rates and hospitalizations in the U.S. have increased nearly 20 percent over the last two weeks. Deaths have increased 30 percent to more than 400 people a day. More than one million people have died from COVID-19 in the U.S. Many more are living with long COVID symptoms. Russia and Ukrainian officials are poised to sign a deal to end Russia's blockade of tens of millions of tons of Ukrainian grain. It's threatened food security around the world. The two countries are expected to sign separate agreements with Turkey and the United Nations today that would enable Ukraine to export 22 million tons of grain that have been stuck in black seaports due to Russia's blockade. The Secretary General of the United Nations and Turkey's president plan to take part in signing ceremonies in Istanbul today. Meanwhile, Ukrainian officials say emergency workers have recovered three bodies from a school hit by a Russian strike in the eastern part of the country as attacks continued in several parts of the nation today. The reported casualties follow attacks on a densely populated area of Ukraine's second largest city, Kharkiv, that killed at least three people and wounded 23 others. A judge has sentenced former Minneapolis police officer Thomas Lane to two and a half years in prison on a federal civil rights charge for his role in George Floyd's murder. District Judge Paul Magnuson sentenced Lane for his February conviction of depriving Floyd of medical care as a black man lay dying under then-officer Derek Chauvin's knee in the May of 2020. Lane, who was white, held Floyd's legs as Chauvin pinned Floyd down for nearly nine and a half minutes, killing him. Two men have been indicted in the case of a tractor-trailer rig found with 53 dead or dying migrants inside San Antonio earlier this month. 
Conviction on the death counts could result in life sentences. The attorney general's office could authorize prosecutors to seek the death penalty. I'm Christina Onestead reporting for Pacifica Radio. And those were our news headlines. The work of our guests this morning prove that rumors of the death of organized efforts to end police violence and to stop abuse in the nation's carceral systems are greatly exaggerated. I'm pleased to welcome my first guest, Leah Brown. Born and raised in the Republic of Brooklyn, New York, Leah Brown has been a public defender in Washington, D.C., a fellow for the International Legal Foundation in Nepal and the West Bank, an attorney with the American Civil Liberties Union and the Southern Poverty Law Center, and is presently staff director at the Advancement Project National Office. The Advancement Project National Office focuses on tackling inequity by combining law, communications, policy, and technology to create workable solutions necessary to achieve systemic change on issues of democracy, voting rights, and access to justice. Good morning, Leah. Thanks for joining me on Sojourner Truth. Good morning. Thank you for the warm introduction and the invitation. I'm so honored to be with you in this forum. Good morning, everybody. So I've been watching the videos for your recent campaign, How Cops Get Off, and the series is just excellent. Please help our listeners get a sense of what this campaign is about and why Advancement Project National Office decided to focus on this topic in this moment, where it seems that talking about police violence is no longer in vogue. Sure, thank you. And the, the series, the campaign is how cops get off, but really it is the, the functional equivalent of um, our director, Judy Brown Dianis. Uh, Judith has a love letter to Black people, and, and that's really what this is. And so if we back up off police for a second and we center ourselves, right, the people um, that this is um, really meant to, to address, it is that our lives matter. Our, li- our lives have value. And the fact that this system, right, this system of policing and the systems that maintain this style of policing that has really um, been amok for 400 years, right, that's independent of uh, what we as human beings deserve, what our communities need, um, and and sort of uh, what we mean to each other. And so it is a love letter to Black people, as well as really an expose um, about all the ways that cops um, get off. And, and I, I, we'll come back around to it later. The, the video most focuses on like this egregious, um, fatal violence, right, and physical violence, but cops have been getting off with a whole host of violence and misconduct for years. And I think it's particularly important in this moment when our own um, sort of would-be allies and would-be peers and the neoliberals are shaming us for um, boldly calling for police 
to be defunded and abolished and, and unapologetically lawyering and activating and champion so that communities can have control over what public safety looks like and how it feels and tastes and smells and manifests in our communities. And so it is a reaffirmation that our lives have value. It is a sort of a calling out all the, all the systems and structures that maintain this, this style of policing, it doesn't have to be this way. And it's also sort of a, a flare, right? Saying we're still here, deep, deep, we, we still need to be talking about transformation, notwithstanding the narrative um, and the myths about crime and crime spiking and how the answer is always more police, more police, more money for police, more police. And so that's a long way of saying, I'm happy to talk further, but I just wanted to shout out that I'm representing not just the Advancement Project, but Judith Brown Dianis in this space. And this is really her love letter um, to Black people. And I'm here to um, just chop it up with you guys. So thank you. Thank you so very much. Judith been doing love letters to Black people. I literally have known Judith since um, BALSA, since Black Law Student Association. That's right. Um, she was the, the national director and I was the re Western Regional Director. And um, we reunited and it feels so good some 30 years later. But it, she's, been, she, she's been giving love this whole time. So we're going to listen to sort of a mashup of some of the highlights of one of the videos in a moment. But just wanted to quickly ask before we go to that clip, you've talked about this love letter as the love letter to Black folks. Um, who is the audience for this particular series? Are we focusing on Black folks um, with the, the video series or is this something that is broader? And then what do you hope folks will do with this information? And then we'll go to the clip. Thank you. I think we're speaking to everyone. There's definitely a broader audience. And I think we're, we're centering um, the, the people who are most targeted and most victimized by this system of policing, which have been historically Black and as well as Indigenous folks, um, all the folks who are subject to, to um these systems, but the it speaks to everyone. Uh, it, it's a sort of schoolhouse rock, if that if that appeals, and it really is not meant to be a lofty, highbrow, super super complex. I guess understand it. It is 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 to just break it down. We all know we've seen videos ourselves, um, and if you've been around this long, you kind of understand that cops have been getting away with all sorts of violations for the beginning of time. And so I think this just speaks to everyone um, to expose the reasons why. And I, and I suppose what you can do with the information, first and foremost, is to ask yourselves, is there another way? Does it have to be this way? Who says? Who says it has to be this way? Um, and, and start there and then we can, we can work our way out from there. I'll just pause on that. Thank you so much. Yeah. Who says, you know, peaking the imagination. So we're going to go to a clip of the video series. It really has like some highlighted points in it. So it's a mashup, folks. It is not the clip is twice as long as what we're going to play for you here. But just wanted you to hear what we're talking about and why I'm so excited about this video series. Every time a cop kills or brutalizes a black person and isn't convicted or even charged, we wonder, how did that cop get off? 
True justice does not ride on a guilty verdict, nor is the value of black life determined by it. Cops go free because they're protected by our laws, our culture, our institutions, by the people who run them. This includes the prosecutors, police unions, and the police force itself. It all starts with this thing called the blue wall of silence. It's a code of silence that cops live by. Their rule is, see something, keep your mouth shut. In 2014, for example, Chicago police officers reported that a black teenager named Laquan McDonald lunged with a knife at officer Jason Van Dyke, and he then shot Laquan McDonald, killing him. The thing is, they lied. Video evidence hidden by the police department, hidden by the city for over a year, eventually revealed the truth. Laquan was actually walking away from Van Dyke. Van Dyke shot him 16 times. When describing what happens to cops who speak up against misconduct, one Chicago police sergeant even said, if someone comes forward as a whistleblower in the department, they are dead on the street. Internal Affairs is actually a division run by police officers whose job is to investigate law-breaking police officers. This culture of silence not only causes retaliation against cops who speak up, but it permits and encourages cover-ups for those cops who are consistently breaking the law. Prosecutors are the ones who make the decisions about whether cops get charged for crimes at all, like murder, manslaughter, assault, brutality, and drug offenses. From 2013 to 2021, out of the nearly 9,000 killings by on-duty police officers that are recorded, only 104 resulted in criminal charges. Well, without the cooperation of the cops, prosecutors can't really prosecute. So prosecutors need police and police work to close their cases. Prosecutors get promoted for a higher number of convictions. It doesn't end there. Police unions play a large role in the protection of cops as well. Police unions are extremely powerful entities that provide money and political power to cover for cop misconduct. They lobby and contribute money to various candidates such as prosecutors, judges, mayors, and legislators running for office, all of whom can pass laws to protect the police. Police unions also protect the rights of cops by negotiating elaborate union contracts. They pay their bail and legal fees when cops have been charged with crime. Cops get off because our systems allow it. For our communities to thrive, we must redefine what safety means. We must work together to reimagine a world where we are all free and safe. Where has this been for the 30 years of my life as the people's attorney breaking this down? It's so, so wonderful. And if you want to watch the cops clip in its entirety, please go to our website, SoTrueRadio.org, or go to the website of the Advancement Project National Office, which Leah will share with us shortly. But Leah, I'm telling you, that gives me goosebumps, and it's not even the whole thing. It's just like pieces of it. But the way it breaks it down is just so lovely. Um, It is a love letter indeed. You talked earlier about how, you know, when we, the things that we see in these videos are one way that happens. And people have been spending so much time talking about giving more money to the police and increased police numbers that I think we're forgetting about those ways. So can you with us just a little more um, detail of how police violence appears other than what we're seeing in these Sure. And thank you for that. Um, thank you for that question, because I am, a, a, I came up where uh, my folks say you have to nip stuff in the butt um, so that uh, 
there doesn't become a mountain out of a molehill. And so I don't want to dismiss it because we call things microaggressions and they really don't have a, a micro trauma or micro harm to it. But I do want to dis distinguish the, the actual shootings and killings and the things that are most uh, captured in the media from the, the things that we experience day to day to day to day to day, the routine assaults and assaults on our minds, assaults on our, on our bodies and our nervous system, as well as um, just assaults on our freedom. And so just for, you know, example, the, 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 if you are a trans person, um, then um, in this style of American policing, not only um, does the system allow you to be murdered um, and your crimes not solved ever, um, but then it, it does further, uh, further abuse. We know that police officers, um, they rape, they commit sexual assault, solicit, they engage in bribery. We know for a fact from all the police units that have had to be disbanded and not just police departments, but sheriff's department units that have had to be disbanded over the years that they're the biggest gangs, right? The, the gang unit in, the, in New York and in LA and the gun recovery units and the vice squads, right? And so it's the day-to-day -day, um, in my neighborhood, we call them jump outs, right? That's, that's aggression that you can be walking down the street or standing outside, you know, your local bodega or whatever it is and have unmarked cars and un, you know ununiformed people literally jump out on you during the course of your routine activities in life just being a black person or being a person in whatever neighborhood you're in and be subjected to um, not just we call it stop and frisk but I want to put some you know some meat to it literally be thrown against a building or a curb or the car right, and be made to spread um, and do all sorts of things. And a lot of times we focus on cis men. Um, and a lot of times, you know, we we uplift all the harms. It's horrible, all, all oppression and all harm, um, right? There's no sweepstakes to it. But I wanna lift up all of the things that cops do to women, to um, gender non-conforming people, to trans people, as well as the day-to-day harassment and the, the the flexing of their authority in the law they call it the show of authority right that does something that does something to us and there's a whole host of literature in the medical field that tell us that policing is a public health hazard it is a medical health hazard it's not a it's not a wonder that we have fibroids and hypertension and we're weatherizing and all these other things. It's the routine day to day to day because they get away with lying, because they get away with stealing, because prosecutors get away with hiding evidence and, and, and you know, not turning over stuff to make, to make the field equal between who they're charging and who's defending them. All that sorts of stuff is what contributes to this escalate and we can get away with it. We can get away with it. We can get away with it. And now what we're experiencing in front of our eyes with horror is that they're doing literally torturing us in the streets for everyone to see. And so that's how they've been able to get away with it because, because it's a daily 
pervasive lack of accountability and a brazenness and a thuggishness. And they've always been um, tasked with, you know, controlling us and making sure that the people who have will continue to have and the people who have not will not disturb the business of the haves. Absolutely. As you're talking, I'm thinking about a couple of things. When I was a law student, so that's a long time ago because I'm old as dirt and twice as funky, um, in the early 90s, worked on a case as an intern with the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, um, MALDEF and other groups because of the Vikings, which was a gang in the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department. And now we're hearing about 20 different gangs, at least in the Sheriff's Department, like That's gang right. gangs. They're tattooing. They got signs. They're doing all of that inside the jail, outside the jail. We still looking at Alex Villanueva trying to understand why he wear long sleeves every darn day. Anytime. Yes. It could be hot, muggy. We try to understand. What's up, Alex? What you don't want us to see, right? Um, and so we know that that has actually proliferated now right. um, since that time period. And I will go. And even I'm, a, go ahead. No, go ahead. I'm sorry. I will go a step further and then bring it back to, to, to the, you know, the cycle of history. We know that they're proud boys and that they're oath keepers and that they're three percenters and that they they uh, participated in and also endorsed the sort of political violence and assault on Black people and critical race theory and all of that, just like they participated in the Klan and all these other subgroups that were racial terrorists. Um, and so, yes, yes, yes. Yes, and let's not forget the ones that opened the doors and opened the gates for people of January 6th. They, they want to talk about those Capitol Police, but I'm going to leave that alone. We don't have we don't have the whole hour. I want to leave That's that right. alone. I, I do have a question, though. Um, as we wind down this segment, because I think people also don't think about the ways that police intersect with other systems and other um, institutions. And so all these budgets, all this money goes to the police that we don't see. So when people's children are being taken away from them and families are being separated, the police are usually there, right? When people are being evicted, who is doing the evicted, evicting? In Los Angeles, for example, it's the Sheriff's Department. And so there's these other spaces, the youth leagues, you know, they love to combine somehow the police with our young folks. And so can you talk about that a little bit and you know, the role that the police pay, uh, play there and why we should be concerned. Thanks for this question. I think, and it relates to uh, the budget and why our children are so poorly educated um, and don't have the opportunities um, if they're dependent in a certain economic bracket, right? It's because the police are doing too much and they're given too much to do too much. Um, and, and, and because this country loves a good cop story as opposed to um, what I think in 2022 ought to be just social, like common sense, um, social, non-militarized, non-armed ways of dealing with uh, issues like addiction. And, you know, and hard times and children that don't uh, have a place to go um, to gather 
and to be children and adolescents, all of that. And so I would I would say that the police are actually they don't just intersect, but they police families, they police housing, especially if you live in public housing, they're policing for gentrification, making sure that the folks that are coming in our neighborhoods, because now the inner city, right, is not so affected by climate destruction the way it is on the beach and in the shores, but they're policing for the for these new gentrifiers, they're policing, you know, jumping the turnstile, which is really an economic, right, like an economic kind of issue, all sorts of stuff. Um, and so we have asked them, not just in their patrol duties to take on so much, but just as a as a as a government, right, of which police is one part. And I think this reflects this in most municipal budgets, right? Their slice is so much. If we were, you know, if we were all looking at a cake and we looked at the police slice of the cake, I mean, it's ridiculous, right? And it doesn't compare to the right, the the, the resources that exist or don't exist for families um, and communi communities that most need it. So thanks for that question. Thank you. Thank you so very much for joining us. This has been rich. We're going to bring you back. I'm going to tell Judith you did good. We're going to bring you back. Hey, <laughs> thank you. It's such an honor to be with you. Thank you. How do folks reach you or reach the Advancement Project National Office if they want to learn more and get more information, please? Sure. www.advancementproject.org. You can reach me personally at L Brown, like the color at advancementproject.org. Um, if you're on social media, then you can find us on the regular uh, channels, adb.project. Thank you again so very much. Leah Brown, we appreciate you and all the work that you are doing. Have a wonderful rest of your day. You too. Bless. On the other side of this break, we will be speaking with LaVette Carbol Thompson. Don't go anywhere. This is Nana Jumpy, today's host of Sojourner Truth, and you can check out other stories and supplemental material on SoTrueRadio.org. If you're on Facebook, you can look for Sojourner Truth and give them a like. We're also on SoundCloud. Look for us there, Sojourner Truth with Margaret Prescott. On Twitter and Instagram, follow our handle, at SoTrueRadio. A new complaint alleges that a nurse sexually assaulted four women who sought medical attention at an ICE detention center in South Georgia. Let's hear more. Top story tonight, a new report alleges multiple women were sexually assaulted at the immigrant detention facility in Lumpkin, Georgia. WRBL's Kenzie Beach joining us now with details. 
Teresa Phil, the four women came forward in a formal complaint released by legal counsel at the Southern Poverty Law Center with support from six advocacy group organizations. Now, these organizations say this incident is part of a long chain of abuse within the Stewart Detention Center. The complaint alleges four women were repeatedly sexually assaulted by a male nurse at the Stewart Detention Center, whose name has been redacted. The report states that when two detainees reported the nurse core civic and ICE employees, they were threatened with both legal action and prolonged detention by officers. Now, Stewart Detention Center has been operated by core civic since it opened in 2006. Core Civic's note, Core Civic is committed to providing high-quality, compassionate treatment to all those in our care, end quote. Advocacy groups like the Georgia Latino Alliance for Human Rights say that after years of, quote, abuse, medical neglect, and human rights violations, they are calling for the shutdown of Stewart Detention Center. This is something that happens in many detention centers. It's not an isolated issue. Um, it's not an isolated something that happened only at Stewart, um, uh, the violence against them, against immigrants, against our communities is very real. The, the reality is that uh, ICE and Core Civic have failed to protect the very same people they are giving the, uh, you know, by the government to uh, take care. Uh, you know, health professional is there to help people, not to harm them or, you know, uh, the violence against them and their bodies. Amoncar Valencia is the executive director of El Refugio, a ministry working with detainees and their families. He says El Refugio has been helping detainees like these for the last 12 years and continues to see cases of neglect and abuse to detainees. Phil and Teresa, WRBL has reached out to both ICE and Core Civic for comment. We have not received a response, but when that information becomes available, we'll bring that to you. All right, thank you so much, Kinsey. To tell us more about this complaint of abuse and neglect, I'd like to welcome our second guest, Lavette Carbell Thompson. Lavette is a Mississippi-born daughter of Sierra Leonean immigrants. She has served as the Operations and Program Coordinator for the National Domestic Workers Alliance Atlanta Chapter, organizing domestic workers of Georgia to win dignity, respect, and labor protections for this vital and growing workforce that's primarily held by women of color. Lavette also led the We Vote, We Rise Integrated Voter Engagement Program. Presently, Lavette continues her work as our brilliant Baji Atlanta organizer, where she is fighting back against discriminatory policies, restricting access to social and economic necessities and protects the civil rights of historically marginalized communities. The Black Alliance for Just Immigration, also known as BAJI, is a US-based national black racial justice and immigrant rights organization that educates, advocates and organizes black migrants and African-Americans for racial, social, and economic justice and black liberation. Greetings, Lavette. Thank you for joining me this morning. Greetings, Nana. It's a pleasure to be here with you this morning. So we just heard that clip that provided some information about what is happening at Stewart, but can you explain a little bit more detail 
um, for our listeners about Stuart, period, right, um, in terms of who it is, what it is, why it's been a problem, and then about this most recent complaint filed by survivors who were detained at Stuart ICE Detention Center. Yes, and thank you. Um, so, you know, again, immigrant women in ICE custody have once again been abused um, inside of Georgia's ICE prisons. Um, this July of 2022, we filed a complaint, immigrant rights um, activists and organizations um, that underscored the graphic accounts of immigrant women facing sexual assault inside of Stewart Detention Center um, by a nurse working at the detention center. Unfortunately, this is not the first time Stewart Detention Center has been at the forefront of human rights violation. Um, it is one of the largest and deadliest ICE prisons in Georgia and has a track record of violations, including the lack of mental health care, arbitrary use of solitary confinement, unsanitary conditions, um, failure to follow pandemic response requirements, medical neglect, and the use of force against the detained population. Um, Stewart Detention Center also has the highest reported number of deaths, unfortunately, due to COVID-19 and any ICE, um, of any ICE facility nationwide. And one of the highest reported numbers of COVID-19 cases in ICE detention centers nationwide. Um, so now here we are uh, where four asylum seeking women have bravely um, gone public with allegations of sexual harassment at the Stewart Detention Center, um, which is located in Lumpkin, Georgia. Uh, this is not the first time um, Stewart has been at the forefront of human rights violations. Um, these women have been able to describe the inappropriate actions of a male nurse employed at the detention center, um, who they say insisted on viewing and groping private body parts without any type of medical justification. Um, over the course of at least one examination, the nurse also rubbed his penis against women's hands, um, according to a letter describing the four women's allegations um, that was submitted to the Department of Homeland Security's Office for Civil Rights and Civil Liberties, or CRCL, um, on July 12th. Um, again, these women are asylum seekers. Um, there is no reason why anyone, um, be it asylum seeker or not, should be subjected to these types of conditions. Um, they were detained by U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement as steward from July 2021 to January of 2022 and are now out of detention as they wait for their immigration cases to proceed. Thank you for that um, detail. I think it's important that people understand it's not a one-off, right? Right. Um, I really appreciate you describing um, Stewart as an immigration prison, because I think sometimes when people hear detention center, mm -hmm. they think it's like the breakfast club with Molly Wingwald, whatever that movie was called, you know, where you're just sitting in some room that's like a college dorm and not really mm -hmm. understanding that these are prisons um, that we are, that this country is putting people in. Um, because they are 
migrants, um, and particularly in this case, people who are seeking asylum. So thank you for, for breaking that down even more. Now, what have immigrant rights advocates in Georgia done to support these survivors? Um, so we've done a many of things. Um, we have um, we have filed um, a CRCL um, complaint um, with um, statements from those victims who um, have been subjected to these abuses. Um, we've also um, filed a FOIA um, as well, and you know these horrifying accounts come less than two years after the news of immigrant women at Irwin County Detention Center, uh, which is about a hundred miles away from Stewart, um, who were being subjected to medical abuse, including invasive gynecological um, procedures without full consent. Um, and so the presence of these instances of undue violence against detained immigrants across different detention centers demonstrates that the problem is much larger than any one facility and that the closure of a singular facility will at best fail to deter violence elsewhere. Um, and, you know, it just shifts the means of violence um, and the officers perpetrating it from one location to the next. Um, so, you know, it's a systemic issue um, that requires not only the closure of Stewart Detention Center, um, but defunding ICE as a whole. Um, some of the other things that we have also um, been able to do um, as immigrant rights um, groups um, is send um, congressional letters um, were sent to every member of the Georgia congressional delegation um, and to members of both the House and the Senate Judiciary and Homeland Security Commit Committees. Um, Senator Warnock and Ossoff um, have shared letters um, with us um, as they are um, calling on the Department of Homeland Security, Office of Civil Rights and Liberties Leadership um, to investigate these allegations um, and um, you know to demonstrate an inhumane lack of care for the women um, and other detained persons at that facility. Um, these are not the first complaints that have been raised at um, De Stewart Detention Center um, about its ability to protect um, or its inability to protect individuals from sexual assault. Um, so, you know, we're asking for investigations into the allegations of sexual assault. Um, definitely want to know what is being done to ensure all individuals are protected at ICE facilities um, from these types of abuse um, and, you know, making sure that they have appropriate language resources um, when they're conducting their interviews um, and outreach um, and, you know, determining, um, are you, you know, if they're making the efforts to determine if there are other victims um, that have been subjected to these types of abuses as well. Yeah, the investigation is really important. Thinking about a couple of things to mind you from your um, comments, and thank you again for sharing this information, speaking with Lavette Thompson. So, you know, I'm thinking about first with Irwin, 
just to make clear, Irwin was shut down. This happened sometime after the allegations, which were brought by um, a, a Black woman, a sister who was a nurse there, of all of these improper, non-consensual, um, violent invasions of the bodies of women and femmes at Stewart, um, including forced sterilization uh, that caused uh, Irwin to be shut down. And then many of those women were transferred then over to Stewart, where now we find, you know, which was already a problem place and was already recognized as bad. And now we find more um, allegations of abuse that are happening there in Stewart. And I'm thinking about on top of this, the layer of George, it's pushback against reproductive rights, um, governmental level, right? On the state level, it's pushback against reproductive rights. It's pushback against bodily autonomy. And, you know, with all of these challenges that folks are facing, because think about being a person who um, is raped, whether that be by police, um, as was uh, described earlier by earlier guest Leah Brown, or whether it be by someone, um, you know, ICE guard or uh, medical personnel in ICE prisons um, in a place where you don't have bodily autonomy or reproductive justice. I mean, what is that going to look like? We know that is going to be a horror. You know, it's going to be an absolute horror, especially if that person then gets deported back to their country. This is something that is, you know, unfathomable in my mind. So thinking about those challenges, what are the opportunities for resistance, for resilience, for transformation? And I know that's a big question, but <laughs> if you could just give us some snippets. Well, it's important that we continue to educate people um, in our communities around these issues um, so that we you know, create safe spaces for us to have dialogues around these issues that are most concerning to us um, in the hopes that um, folks will be able to vocalize their concerns and share um, accounts of, you know, where they've seen these types of abuses occur so that we as a community um, can continue to educate ourselves on ways to fight back, um, be it through, um, organizing our communities around these issues um, and, you know, going and holding these people accountable um, for what has been occurring under their watch. Um, ultimately, we want to see these jails and these detention centers shut down. Uh, we, want, um, we want ICE to be defunded um, because these are not the ways in which we see ourselves um, supporting each other um, and, and providing the type of care that people deserve. Um, we definitely need to um, figure out a better way um, of approaching immigration um, in this country um, and how we provide support for those who are seeking asylum um, because that is perfectly, you know, that's, that's legal. And everyone, you know, people have the right to seek asylum. And because of that, they should not be detained um, in these inhumane conditions, under these inhumane conditions. Um, and, and their rights should not be violated um, just because they're seeking support and help. Um, so there has to be a better process 
and supporting um, individuals who are seeking um, this type of care and help and support. Um, people are already in fear um, when they are having to leave their countries. Um, and so coming um, where they feel that they can get the support um, and assistance, um, it doesn't help that we continue to detain people um, in these types of conditions um, where they can, like these women, um, be subjected to sexual assault. Um, so um, my hope is that we can continue to organize as a community, educate each other um, around our rights um, and who um, we need to hold accountable um, for these changes um, so that we can create the type of community that we um, seek to live in. Thank you for that, Levette. And, you know, I want to add and ask another question because we're talking here in this particular case with this particular complaint about four women who are seeking asylum. We know that many of the folks that are in detention prisons that are black immigrants are in detention because of on because of some contact with the criminal legal system, right? And um, that, in fact, almost seventy five percent between 70 and 75% of those who are being detained that are black and are facing deportation are facing deportation on criminal grounds. And so I think it would be helpful to talk a little bit about like, how do people um, in those cases, why is it that they're ending up as black folks um, in detention um, on this criminalization tip? And really to talk about, um, you know, whether detention prisons are a good idea for them either. Um, absolutely. So, you know, we know that um, being Black in America, um, you know, just being Black in America <laughs> um, says a lot. And um, at any point in time, if there is any contact with the criminal justice system, um, things don't always turn out um, in a positive way. Um, we've seen where, um, you know, just not having a, a license and being undocumented can get you um, caught into the criminal justice system. Um, and, you know, just needing to, um, you know, just being undocumented can get you caught up in the criminal justice system. Um, and, you know, these types of contacts um, with the criminal justice system um, aren't always um, favorable for um, people of color um, who are just trying to go about their daily uh, routines um, and are just trying to make a better life for themselves. And so um, when we see, um, you know, um, surveillance of our communities, when we um, see over-policing of our communities, um, you know, these are ways in which and tactics in which we know that they've used um, to criminalize people, black and brown people in our communities. Um, and ultimately, you know, once they have been detained, it's a very, it's a, it's a big challenge um, for folks of color to get the type of support, legal support that they're needing um, in order to um, have their cases heard. Um, a lot of individuals who have been detained unwrongfully 
um, ultimately are deported um, back to, you know, conditions that aren't safe, um, that they have long journey to get somewhere where they can get the support that they need. Um, and so, you know, it is just um, the way in which the criminal justice system has, you know, um, impacted our community um, has definitely had detrimental, um, you know, effects um, on not only the individual, but their families as well. And so how do people advocate? So, you know, we have folks who are coming here seeking asylum that are being detained as part of the normal asylum process. When you say, I'm here seeking asylum, what the United States does is it throws you in a cage. Then we have people, some of whom have been living here for decades, have families, jobs, et cetera, who have been criminalized uh, mainly because of the anti-Blackness of the criminal sanction system, who also find themselves in these detention prisons all of which are conditions that can't be repaired, right? You cannot repair, you can't fix the prison conditions, whether they be in the criminal sanction system or the immigration system. And so if people want to advocate, you know, if community members and others want to advocate and support um, these efforts to shut down these um, detention prisons, efforts to support survivors of abuse in these detention prisons, what do they, what should they do? A lot of the detainees that are in these detention centers rely on nonprofits and organizations that can provide pro bono resources to help them navigate the immigration landscape in Georgia and in other places as well. The majority of these resources are located in and around the metro area. So when, you know, we see detention centers that are primarily in rural areas, um, it makes it very difficult for folks to get the type of support that they're needing, um, as well as family support, because they're having to travel longer distances um, to get to their to, to their loved ones. Um, and so um, it's important that we just continue to stay connected um, with those that are in detention um, to, you know, hear what their concerns may be um, and see how it is that we can support them um, in, in, in what their, you know, concerns may be in detention center, be it medical neglect um, or sexual assault um, or food insecurity. You know, some people are not even receiving the proper diets. Um, and so it's important for us to just stay connected uh, with individuals so that we can um, not not only just support them, but we can hear their voices as well um, and make sure that their voices are heard um, as they are being detained and experiencing uh, what is what seems to be um, a lot of cover up um, and lack of accountability um, for what is taking place in the detention center. Even for these women who have come forward um, with their complaints, um, much of what they had, um, you know, stated to the individuals that were working at Stewart Detention Center, um, it just fell on deaf ears. They didn't believe them. They were retaliated against. Um, and um, their, you know, complaints weren't heard. Um, and so we want to make sure that we continue to apply pressure where it's needed. 
Um, if we can help them and support them in filing a complaint, um, those are the things that we want to make sure that we're doing um, outside of the detention center um, to support those um, that are suffering um, these human rights violations. Um, but, you know, the very nature of these facilities is just criminal. And so my hope is that we can really abolish and get rid of these detention centers altogether. Absolutely. Thank you, Lavette. Very, very edifying. Thank you so very much. If folks want to reach you or if they want to reach Baji, how do they do so? They can reach um, Baji at www baji.org or they can reach me at levette l-o-v-e-t-t-e dot baji i mean at baji.org <laughs> sorry about that thank you so very much no thank you thank you really appreciate that sharing that information thank you thank you thank you have a wonderful rest of your day levette thank you All right, folks, how the time flies. This doesn't even make any sense. Look at us. We are already at the end of time. Really appreciating um, the conversation linking together what is happening with policing and what is going on and what people think of as the criminal um, and carceral legal system and what's happening with respect to the immigration detention deportation system and being able to show how those things are connected and work together. I'd like to thank our guests, the Sojourner Truth team, including my dear sister, Margaret Prescott, our board operator for today, Gary Baca, and assistant producer, Alicia Vargas. If you'd like a copy of today's show, you can contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230 or go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. Sojourner Truth will be back on the air next week. Stay tuned for Democracy Now! This is your guest host, Nana Jumphy. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>